Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. All right. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you tuned in this episode. And today I'm excited to interview David John. And David is or actually most recently associate dean of the UMKC Medical School. Until very recently, yes. Until just a few weeks ago, right? Or months ago? Yes. Months ago. Yeah. So you're you're edging towards changing the pace of your life now, right? I am trying. <laughs> so, and we met a few years ago. I can't remember how long ago, but a couple, at least two years. At least two years ago. At least two years ago. And uh, I have I have grown to uh, greatly admire and appreciate David, and he's been a blessing in my life. So I kind of wanted to have him share some of his story. And our, our stories met probably because both of us are in recovery. Mm -hmm. I don't think we would have met otherwise, right? Probably not. So, um, so that just is a little teaser for people. We're, we're not going to start there, but we're going to get there okay. uh, as we talk through your story. But thank you so much for for joining us on Spirituality Adventures. So I always like to start with your origin story, a little bit of your background, like where you were born, where you grew up, kind of maybe give us a little idea about your, your family and what it was like growing up in your family. Okay. Give us a little bit of your early years growing up. Born in Springfield, Missouri. My parents moved to Kansas City when I was maybe four or five. Uh, oldest of three kids. Um, my uh, I grew up in south in the, uh, Kansas City in the suburbs, the son of a police officer, and my mom was a um, supervisor at uh, Western Electric out in Lee Summit. Um, uh, so I was, I was always the quiet, studious kid, um, bookish, uh, and uh, did well in school. Uh, my dad didn't, my dad didn't understand how he had, could have a son like me. You know, my, my brother was a football quarterback and, and I was the bookworm who stayed quietly in his room. So it, he, we didn't get along very well. And I left home at 17, um, uh, and have been independent ever since I, I left home. Um, so, um, then, uh, I planned on going away to college, but couldn't afford it when I left home. So I, I stayed in Missouri and, and I ended up going to medical school here in Missouri, initially with a, uh, resenting it because I really wanted to be an English professor and write Pulitzer Prize winning pieces, maybe a Nobel Prize. But I got uh, accepted into the six year medical school program. I could afford, I it was, had to stay in state. So I went, I ended up being uh, really grateful that that happened to me. But um, when I started taking care of patients, I realized how lucky I was. Hmm. So um, uh, when I was 23, I moved to um, Honolulu for my internship, planning on staying one year. Uh, met my wife, a medical student, and uh, stayed in Hawaii almost 40 years. Uh, very busy practice. 40? 
almost 40. 40 years. Okay. Um, until six years ago. And um, seven years ago, I was in Kansas City for some family business. And I happened to be here on a medical school reunion weekend. I, at the last minute, went to a reunion function. One of the deans said, why don't you come back and be a professor here? And I said, no, thank you. I'm not leaving Hawaii. And, uh, you know, but I went back home and I uh, spent two or three months thinking about the job I was offered, which was the perfect job for me uh, at that point in my life, something I wanted to change to do. And about three months later, I called Dr. Waldman back and said, I'm coming. And so I started uh, the medical school April Fool's Day six years ago. And um, I've never regretted coming back to Kansas City. And I've never regretted this decision. As much as I miss Hawaii, uh, I made the right decision. And now, um, now um, I'm going to stay in Kansas City. Uh, I have so many personal ties here that I thought I'd move back to Hawaii, but I don't think so. And um, and uh, but I did step down from being associate dean, and I'm stepping away from uh, my my medical school obligations and trying to learn how to uh, take more time off and uh, travel more and play harder and and those kind of things, but I'm a workaholic. And so it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm making small steps. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know how important small steps can be, right? Yes. So, yeah. Um, so I'm, so I'm curious, you, so you, you are now a gay man, right? Is that okay to say? Absolutely. And yet you just told us that when you went to Hawaii, you married your wife. All right. Correct. So I'm so I, I I love digging into some of these things. So like um, so how like in terms of your sexual orientation, growing mm -hmm. up in Kansas City, did you ever did when did you first how, tell us about that? How does that work? So well, you you got married to a woman. You have two daughters, right? Correct. Two daughters, and those are adopted daughters. Correct. Okay, but I'm I'm kind of curious about that that part of your life, if you don't mind talking about it. Sure. I, I think that um, for the first half of my life, I consider myself bisexual. And um, uh, when you fall in love with someone, you become attracted to them. At least I did, uh, no matter what sex they were. And um, so before I met my wife, I had had relationships with on both sides, more women than men. And, uh, I didn't want to settle down. I didn't want to get married. I didn't, I just wanted, I was only 26 when I got married and, and, um, but my wife was just too perfect, too beautiful, too intelligent, too exciting. And we had a wonderful marriage for the first 10 years of it. And then she had health problems that, at a young age that caused her to become a very bitter person and it was my fault. And so she thought, so anyway, uh, the last 10 years weren't so easy, but, uh, um, I, by the time I left my marriage, I, I remember I, I told my, uh, my ex-wife that I wanted a divorce on the, after a father's day from hell. And, um, that next Wednesday, I I'd already been sober a year. I was at an A meeting and, um, I shared that I was getting a divorce at an AA meeting and this cute guy had been hitting on me for months, uh, hit on me again after the meeting. And that's when I started uh, with Tom. And, um, and so, uh, um, but I, 
was very happy in my marriage. Uh, so I, I'm not totally gay, but um, I think that now that uh, I've sort of taken another path and um, I find uh, it easier, uh, relationships with men to me are easier. And so, um, um, but I could still fall in love Whoever I would fall in love with, I think I would be attracted to. Okay. If that makes sense. Um, um, I've, yeah. I've always had the idea that you could fall in love with more than one person. Um, I mean, maybe, not, maybe I'm not saying necessarily at the exact same time or anything. I, I'm just thinking like in, in, over the course of a lifetime, you can, I don't, I don't know. I just think, you, I don't know. Yeah, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to say that to be against monogamy, or I'm not talking necessarily about polyamory or anything like that. But I think you can fall in love, and then not, and then that can ebb away, right? I mean, I know I fell in love with my my wife for sure, but I also think we moved apart, right? Yeah, and then now, like, I'm open to new love, you know, that kind of thing. So. It's it's really hard to imagine that uh, in a 50-year relationship, you wouldn't evolve, change, and often grow away from each other, and it's nobody's fault. And so um, if, if one relationship does grow uh, distant, then it opens up for others. Now, having being... I'm a lover, so I, I love lots of people in various ways, but to be in love and have a, a romantic relationship with more than one person at a time, I could do it. I wouldn't dare do it because somebody will get hurt. Mm. We're just too human, yeah. but I could do it. I can love more than one person at a time, but I wouldn't because I, um, like the relationship I'm in now, I would never do something to hurt Ricardo, and I think that that would probably hurt yeah yeah but i think it's possible yeah i'm like growing up i i, I think we're pretty close in age i mm -hmm. think um and so like you're growing up in the 70s as a teenager mm -hmm. right and being gay in the 70s like i i'm thinking back on my high school experience like i know now there was at least one or two or three people that were gay but they didn't they didn't talk about it. They didn't know it. I mean, yeah. there wasn't, in fact, they would have hidden it. I'm quite sure, you know? Um, and, uh, so I'm curious how you navigated, like, did, like, how did that, how did you navigate that? And then you, then you get married to a woman and did you just, were you just able to to bury that part of you or I guess it or was just or suppress it or something. But yeah. I was very satisfied uh, in my marriage as long as we were happy together. And uh, because I loved my wife and um, but even going back to high school days. Uh, yeah, it would have been it would have been probably suicidal to be too out about it. Uh, but at the same time. At the same time, uh, people, how do I say this? Um, I happened to be the, uh, the bookworpmish type kid whose friends were all jocks. So, uh, you know, I was really close friends with uh, 
football and basketball players in my class. And sometimes at sleepovers, they initiated things that you wouldn't think straight guys would initiate. So even back then, it was kind of quietly, um, uh, things happened, but, um, with these really macho guys. Interesting. <laughs> so, um, so I think everybody's curious. It's, it's a matter yeah. of, it's, even if you're straight, you're sort of sexually curious when you're 17 years old. Yeah. And, and also you're so sexually charged yeah. that, um, almost anything looks interesting at times. Right. So, uh, but as far as being public about it, and then my yeah. dad, um, my dad couldn't have handled it either. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think today, um, you know, kids that are entering into adolescence are really exploring their sexuality through pornography. I, I think the, the, the statistics show mm -hmm. that now that kids are, you know, the, the LGBTQ world is more open. The kids um, are thinking about, well, what am I? Yeah. Like I did, I never thought that question. You know, I didn't, I, I was a guy and I've always been heterosexual. So I, the thought never even came into my mind that there were more options for me, you know? <laughs> but I think kids today actually the, are, are exposed to more options through yeah. a lot, I think through pornography. I, I actually think there's hard It's not stats. just pornography, it's just Parts. social media. Yeah, social, you know, media. social media that's not pornographic is still yeah, exploratory true. and, uh, and um, it uh, is affirming to people who, like I have, an, I have a trans niece mm -hmm. who um, uh, maybe is alive today and not, didn't commit suicide simply because of social media support mm. because uh, she was locked away in her room and homeschooled when it came out that this was a problem. And, and so um, problem to her parents. So, um, but she's doing fine. And, um, but found the love and acceptance she needed to be on social media. Was. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and yeah. so that was, that was her life because mm -hmm. she wasn't allowed to socialize. I think it's sad uh, to, to have uh, you know, a thousand friends on social media, uh, and maybe not any in real life. You know, I, I, I'm not that type of person. Mm -hmm. I don't do social media, but, um, but I do think that for somebody who's alone and thinks there are, there's nobody else in the world like them, maybe it does save them. And that's not pornography, but pornography yeah, too right. is so ac accessible to kids now. Yeah. So, um, um, I wonder, uh, how, if that, uh, kind of desensitizes them and things are, I don't know. It's yeah. I'm, I'm going to be pursuing interviews with, with people, you know, that are sex therapists and that kind of thing and how that plays in with kids today and all that kind of stuff. It, it fascinates me. I grew up in a, what I would say was a very shame based sexual ethic. Um, growing up in, you know, this, evangelical religious world. The sexual ethic I was taught or absorbed, and it wasn't so much my parents as, as much as the church world that I was in and, you know, felt a part of because I felt called to be a pastor. But my sexual ethic would have been, well, God made sex. And if you're heterosexual in a heterosexual marriage, actually, you can do it. But if you're not in a heterosexual marriage, you can't do it 
and you can't think about it because we had this idea that, that lust was wrong and I, how I conceived of lust was thinking about sex. So I always, I was always trying as a 16, 17, 18 year old kid that felt called to be a pastor, like not to ever think about sex. <laughs> and it's like, you can imagine I wasn't very successful, right? And then even as an adult and even in, in the marriage I was in, it is like, I, I felt shame about my sexual, my sexual, or just my sexual, not even my sexual identity, just my, the fact that I had sexual uh, feelings, mm-hmm. sexual thoughts, sexual emotions, sexual fantasies. I felt guilty and shamed about that, like my whole adult life almost, you know? And I, and now I'm like, going, holy crap. Like, I just, I feel sad about that, right? And then I think that's caused so many people to have, you know, like when I talk to people in the LGBTQ world, the one thing we usually share is a shame-based, some type of shame-based ethic. So many of my friends that are in the LGBTQ world grew up in environments where they tried to pray the gay away or pray their sexual identity away because they felt shame about it and they hated themselves, right? Like self-hatred was a huge, huge part of some of some people's, you know, sexual identity until they either hated themselves, wanted to kill them, or, and then they, f- they finally had to stop doing that, right? And s- start finding out ways to affirm themselves, love themselves, sex positive messages, all that kind of stuff. But, but I look back now on that and I like, holy crud, you know, I bought into a whole big worldview that I think actually is damaging now. I really do. I th- so I'm, I'm doing my best to try to <laughs> reverse course on that and, you know, try to have sex positive messages. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious, did you struggle with the shame base? Not at all. I am really lucky. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have, um, first of all, I was very well read. You know, when I was in eighth grade, I, you know, I was reading college material, war and peace kind of stuff. And so, um, I, I saw the world as an adult as a, when I started having uh, sexuality issues, I was already, I had an adult education about things. Number one, number two, uh, I didn't have any religious, any significant religious influence growing up one way or the other. Um, uh, in fact, most of the religious experiences, um, influences I had were negative. And so um, they, I dismissed them. And so I didn't have religious shame and, um, and I didn't really have a personal shame. But that doesn't mean I was, was stupid about getting negative sanctions from my environment, but I uh, personally did not, but I'm, I think I'm very unusual. And, uh, and I'm very grateful that I escaped all those shame-based things. And um, uh, I had been shameful about, shamed by other things, mm-hmm. but they weren't uh, uh, they my re- sexuality. They and didn't revolve around your sexual identity or your, or your sexuality. No, and, no. And, um, and then, you know, if... I think that's a blessing. Yeah, oh, it's a huge <laughs> blessing. And, 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 you know, and logically, 
if we were not supposed to be sexual beings, why is every human being on the planet a sexual being? Exactly. And so, uh, yeah. other than reproduction. It's insanity. Yeah, it is. It is. It's and insanity. That doesn't mean that there's not healthy and unhealthy uh, <laughs> right. sexual practices, but they're, right. they're not restrictive to the missionary position, a heterosexual missionary position. Right. And, and so, um, yeah. I think that uh, I, I, sp I spared that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and your sexuality is, is broader than just your you know, broader than just sex, but yeah. it's your, it has to do with your, your identity and the way you think of yourself and the way you relate to the world. And, and that's a spectrum too. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I consider myself very male, you know, it's not like I have any, um, it, anyway, I, I, I was lucky and yeah. I think I'm a minority. I think you are, but I think it's a good minority. Yeah. <laughs> and I honestly think, you know, like I even think of it in terms of like, like if I was raising kids today, you know, if I had my own kids, and I was raising my kids, how would I want to raise them in a sex positive kind of environment and still help them navigate healthy sexual boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. But have, have sex positive messages that their sexuality is a gift and that it's, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed about having sexual desires, sexual thoughts, your sexual identity, like all of that. So I tend to think of it through those lenses, but man, so many kids today have been raised up in these religious environments that it's shame all the way down. I think it's a form of cruelty. I do too. And, um, and I think you can, uh, you can discuss sexuality in, in the context of caring and of love. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily being in love, that doesn't happen every day, but but being in caring relationships and loving relationships where I think almost everybody would agree that sexual experiences are so much more valuable, so much more uh, rewarding. Uh, for instance, I don't watch pornography. I think it's boring. And I, don't want, I don't want anything to do with uh, that kind of stuff. Not because I'm better than, because I'm bored by it. It doesn't have any warmth to it. And it has no humanity to it. So um, I think you can teach your children uh, to find, uh, to, to not be ashamed of their sexuality, but also to, to teach them that it's best in the context of a loving relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's dive back. So you're married, you're in Hawaii, you're, you do your internship in Hawaii. We're going to jump backwards in your story okay. here a little bit. Um, give us, give us a little feel for, for David John in Hawaii, starting out his medical career and his marriage. And you know, that, that you had a long career there. I did. So give us a little bit of, of your sense of the, your career your family, and then how, what, what started happening to the, that, that ended up causing you to have to go to rehab? Okay. All right. Well, um, backing up a little bit more than that. Okay. You know, um, I, I gave up drugs and alcohol for the first time when I was 17 because, uh, my dad was a narc, Kansas City Police narc and we didn't get along so i got kind of I, enjoyment of doing drugs under his nose and but uh, as soon as i left home at, halfway through my senior year in high school it was no fun anymore so i pretty much gave it all up except for booze when i had the time but i put myself through school so there wasn't that much time halfway through my internship um i had a bloody nose 
wouldn't stop. I went to ER, got admitted, had an angiogram, had a tumor. They wanted to take my face off. I said no. So um, there was this long struggle with my surgeons. And um, finally, I agreed to a, a no, nasal, uh, through my nose getting a biopsy. And it was a benign lesion. They could get it out through my nose. A scary week, and I, I really had a lot of thinking to do laying in that hospital bed for five days fighting with him. And um, after that, I went and crazy. Had you completed your in your halfway through my internship? internship? Okay. Uh, it was over Christmas, and okay. so um, then so I went wild and I went wild and I found every bad place in Waikiki and came I almost got kicked out of my internship from being the model intern to being a guy who was late for call because I couldn't find my car and it was horrible and then this beautiful amazing three-time valedictorian woman wanted wanted me I think she wanted a bad boy and so I gave all that up and I got out of Waikiki and I was faithful to my marriage for 20 years um but she saved my life because hmm. those were the AIDS days wow and she, and I would have died I'm sure with my behavior. So that's the second time I cleaned it up. And then the, mm. then, um, the first 10 years of marriage, she, she's a doctor too. And all we did was think about work and getting ahead and building a big house on the hill and all the wrong things. And we didn't take time for each other, but we were very successful. And we were, everybody thought we had it all. But our, you know, life was just so stressful and, and busy. Talk about what were, what were you doing? Where were you working and where was she working? And She's a dermatologist still practicing and uh -huh. um, she uh, had her own private practice in, in Honolulu. And I was a rheumatologist who initially joined a large clinic uh, called Straub Clinic. And after six years went in private practice. Um, and so I had a private practice, the biggest hospital in Honolulu, the Queens Hospital. And um, so we were both extremely successful professionally and um, kind of like a power couple in this community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we didn't take time for each other. Mm. Not that we didn't care. We just, we collapsed when we got home at night. And um, then she had a serious illness in her early thirties that shook up our relationship and it uh, was, I, I couldn't repair it. And um, so uh, without going into details on her issues, our, our, our happiness spiraled into unhappiness and um, uh, we had two little girls. And uh, so I tried to hang on and uh, I found that anesthetizing myself with alcohol helped me cope at night um, with a bitter, unhappy wife. And, um, but then it got to the point where, um, uh, you go from abuse to suddenly uh, being an addict and, and, uh, that's then your behavior changes to where my children were important, but my bottle of scotch was more important than anything. Because if, if, I, if it wasn't, why would I drive drunk with my little girls in the back of the car if they weren't, if the drinking wasn't more important than my daughters? It be, alcohol became more important than anything. And usually in addiction, you hang on to your profession till the, till the end because that's how you make money to buy your drugs. So I managed to, when I told my staff I was an alcoholic and putting myself in rehab, they all couldn't believe it because I was a highly functional two-fifths of scotch a night drinker. I don't know how I did it. Mm. And um, 
And you were in your 30s? I was in this my, was going well, 40s? Uh, I went to rehab when I was 43. So the last two or three years were bad. So mm -hmm. 40, 41, 42, 43, those were the bad years. And uh, what, how old were your daughters then? Uh, little, because uh, we adopted them later. Uh, when I got divorced, they were 8 and 11. Okay. And so uh, they were the years up to that, you know, um, but I was the, I was the domestic one of the two. I was the one who put them to bed. I was the one who read them bedtime stories as long as I could stay sober enough to read. And, you know, it, it just got, at the end, uh, it got very, very horrible. And um, then um, Father's Day 96, um, I went into a rage. I never lose my temper. I went into a drunken rage and was physically abusive to my firstborn. And she started crying, and I started crying, and I had my moment of clarity when I uh, realized I'd become my father. And um, I wasn't willing to do that to my kids. So I knew I had a friend of mine in Kona who was in uh, recovery, and I called up Steve and said, Would, can, I, can I talk to you? I need help. And he said, sure. And I said, can I fly over to Kona? So I flew to Kona, I spent the day with him, and we, we went up in the mountains, and he hunted goats with bow and arrow. And uh, I watched him shoot a couple of goats with his bow and arrow. And, but he told me about uh, his, his um, path and how he tried one more thing before he committed. So he had planned out a suicide to save his family, but uh, he was going to try one more place. And it was a place in Atlanta that specialized in doctors. And so I went home and I booked a flight to Atlanta and I checked in on 7797 and I signed in myself into an acute psychiatric hospital for detox. And when I signed my name on that piece of paper, I felt such relief. I felt it was over, it was over. And it really was over. Unlike other people, I didn't have to relapse. And so um, I was there five months. They did what they wanted me to stay longer, <laughs> but uh, it was Christmas time and I hadn't been allowed to talk to my kids on the phone for a few months and I was going insane. And so um, I went home on December 6th and um, went to a halfway house. I had to agree to live in a halfway house. So I had a $3 million house on the hill and I lived in a $300 a month halfway house with a bunch of meth addicts and cockroaches and centipedes and I was happy there. This is after you got out of rehab. After nine months of rehab, I had four months in the halfway house. Wow. And... Um, and so I would drive up to uh, my house, which wasn't too far away, make breakfast, drive my kids to school, go to work, come home, make dinner, wash the dishes, leave for an eight o'clock AA meeting, and then go to my uh, halfway house to sleep. And that was wow. the way it was for four months, so I could see my kids. But I'm gonna back you up just a little bit. Yeah. Before you went to rehab. Yeah. So you've got these young daughters, you're putting them to bed, but your, your marriage is not doing well and you're drinking every night at the worst you were drinking two fifths of scotch and some nights yeah yeah and you're but you guys are both i mean you're hanging out you're going golfing with the governor yeah you're you're on the healing board of arts in hawaii is that right i or, was involved with um some of the politics, but after I got back from rehab is when I was okay. involved more with that. Okay, yeah. well, I'm still before you went to rehab. Before I went to rehab. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, like, you know, you know my story. I, I, my story went public, you know, like 
you know, for Kansas City, I was, you know, all of a sudden this megachurch pastor goes to rehab and there was a front page Sunday edition article, you know, megachurch pastor goes to rehab, two page article. I was an alcoholic, an addict and an adulterer, you know, which is not what I wanted to be known for at the age of 57. You know, um, I hadn't lived my life to make, you know, to make that headline. Um, I think you had a, a little bit of a similarity in that you, your story went public as well. Is that right? Yeah, I'm kind of jealous because I wasn't on the front page of the paper. Oh, I didn't excel as quite as much as you did, but well, you know, I was gone for five months and when I, and I was, I, I was so much, um, so visible that people were asking where I was at. And of course, one, my, uh, wife was glad to tell them. And so was some of my neighbors, um, they were very gossipy and Honolulu is a big, small town. So, um, the, um, the gossip, uh, went pretty wild. And so then I, I come home to that and I had to hold my head up high and my patients, um, a few of them heard and they would say, uh, they would say something like, I hear you've been having some troubles. I said, yeah, I was really not very healthy, but I'm really good now. And uh, he said, well, we're, and they were all wonderful. They would say, we're so glad you're back doc. And, and we're proud of you. And they were, my patients were wonderful hmm. about and non judgmental. And uh, maybe I lost a few, so I didn't see those, but my practice didn't decrease at all when I got back. And, and, uh, but my fellow physicians had trouble hmm. because we're not supposed to get sick. Hmm. We're not supposed to be weak. And so um, I made them very uncomfortable. Yeah. And, um, but, um, I, I had to hold my head up high because, uh, and I, I was, it was kind of lucky that I thought everybody knew cause then I didn't have to, I hate lying. I won't lie anymore. And, uh, when you're an addict, you lie. And so, um, one of the things that gives your self-esteem back is rigorous honesty. And so, um, I don't lie about anything. I will keep my mouth shut sometimes to be polite, but, uh, but, uh, I, I was, thought everybody knew so I just acted like everybody knew and I found out who my friends were and who were, who really didn't care about me as a friend mm -hmm. and so it called all those people out I mean it was ended up being good and then one year to the day the next father's day was when I told my wife I was divorcing her and uh, the next Wednesday I started dating Tom whose father was extraordinarily he was sort of like the Women and Children's Hospital, the most prominent OBGYN of the century kind of a guy. So everybody knew Tom. And so uh, I was outed in the medical community about being gay one year later and um, had to hold my head up again. But Honolulu is a pretty liberal city. It's, mm -hmm. So it wasn't as bad. And so, um, but I, I just learned to get, uh, thick skinned is not the right word because I'm not so thick skinned, but I just figure that, uh, there's a, there's a saying in A, if it, whatever you think can be, it's none of my business. And so if, um, if people don't like me, I have so many friends. If you don't like me, that's fine. I, I don't want to waste time with people because I have friends I don't have enough time for. Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not worried about uh, other people's opinions of me because uh, I have enough. Yeah. You've, I've heard you share a story um, uh, several times where you're coming out of rehab. So you'd been at 
at Talbot for what, nine months? Five. five oh, five months, sorry. Five months. And, you know, there's this higher power thing that we talk about in the 12-step world. I'm kind of curious, like, what was your spiritual perspective maybe before you got into the 12-step world? And what what's your spiritual perspective now after you've been in the 12-step world now for over 25 years? But but I want you to tell the story on the plane ride home, too. So okay. you see where I'm framing this up a little bit. But anyway. I, I, I see what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all... Um, um, my experiences with uh, organized religion were negative growing up. And I was kicked out of Sunday school in third grade. Uh, and I don't even remember why. I probably just asked the question why. And my uh, grandmother quit the church because I would go in the summers with her to church because my parents didn't go to church. But um, so I, I had lots of negative things uh, about organized religion. And, and so I thought, well, I'm, I still want to be a spiritual person. I had no idea what spirituality was about. And um, I was just a workaholic and... Uh, I think I was even then a humanist, uh, but not to the degree I am now. So I went to the rehab and they started talking about this higher power all the time. And the, the literature refers to God a lot. It was written in the 1930s. Some of it was lifted directly from the Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer because one of my friends gave me a, a book of Common Prayer and I said, oh, I, that's, yeah, you know, anyway, so uh -huh. um, it's very Christian uh, terminology used and a lot of uh, the reference to God. And I, I was sitting there thinking, um, I can't make it because I can't do a higher power. And But then uh, after a couple of months, one of the triumvirate there mentioned in a talk that uh, gratitude is a form of spirituality. And uh, I was thought out enough after a couple of months there to realize I have a lot to be grateful for and I can do gratitude. And so that was the, and I'm still an extremely grateful man. And that is uh, sort of the beginning of my spiritual experience. Um, as far as uh, it, something higher than myself, um, I had trouble, uh, something more powerful than myself, which is really important to have, I think, if you're trying to stay clean and sober. Uh, I had trouble with that. And, um, but then things, a few things started happening. I think the one you're referring to, I would, near the end of my rehab, we, they let us go home for a long weekends to see how things would go. And so I would fly from Atlanta to Honolulu and then back, and they would give me like four days, you know, one day travel time on each end and two days at home. And, um, I was flying back to Atlanta after the first one uh, on a night flight. And uh, um, I, there was a two seats, uh, 22A and B on Delta. And in those days, they put the night nocturnal bar in the aisle and they put it right in front of 22A and B. And I had a really difficult time trying to interface with my then wife uh, in those days, flying back to Atlanta, feeling frazzled, hurt, angry, all those negative things. And this bar was placed in front of me for a flight nonstop from Honolulu to Atlanta. And I started getting squirrely and squirmy and I pulled out my, my, uh, uh, three month coin and I pulled out my big book and I'm trying to just think about staying sober. And the guy next to me, uh, um, 
I was A, he was B. In 22B, he looks over to me and says, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm really uncomfortable. And he looks over at the bar and he looks back at me and he said, is that a problem? I said, he said, uh, my name is Jack. I've got 23 years and he, or something like that. It's a certain amount of years. And he shook my hand and he talked to me the whole way, the whole flight. He talked to me and he calmed me down. And by the time I was fine with that bar sitting there with Jack right next to me and him talking to me and talking about uh, putting things into perspective. And he saved me mm. because I would have gotten off the flight shit and bad drunk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would have... Um, it kept me forever, you yeah. know? And so um, I, he, he saved me, he was there for me. And so I started thinking, that seems more than coincidence that somebody was there when I needed him. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was another, it was another human, but it felt powerful and it felt, uh, and so I started, being a little more open to to things like that and i i do at this point feel that there's something i there's something um mystical mystical about life that i really can't define but i'm okay with that i just knowing that that there's a something mystical that has kept me from drinking for 25 and a half years uh, i'm just grateful for that too mm. And, but I can't really define it any better than that. But um, I guess uh, I guess that's my spirituality. Yeah. Well, I I love that, um, especially the gratitude part. I think that's such a, a critical part of of spirituality and and of sobriety. You know, um, I'm kind of curious. Like uh, for me. I've only been in the program now for three and a half years, but you know, as I, I've, as I've gone through the literature and, you know, lived in the program now for three and a half years, one of the things that I've realized is like, gosh, I mean, this is just like, I, I don't know anybody who wouldn't benefit from living the program, alcoholic or not mm -hmm. addict or not like just human beings, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and, um, and so part of what I, what I do, you know, even when I write blogs and stuff like that, is I kind of try to sprinkle in a little bit of, a little bit of AA, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of just, you know, sound mental health and, and good, you know, love, love God, love your neighbor, love, love, forgive, you know, but the program really, um, in, in my mind, there's not anybody on the planet that wouldn't benefit from the principles that are in the 12-step the program. And you've walked this out now for 25 years. You've been in, you know, the medical world, um, friendships, relationships, all, all just your whole world for 25 and a half years. You've been living this program. How what principles have you found to be most important to your recovery? I know that's maybe a big question. And then how have, how have you, uh, I'm trying to think of how I want to ask this question. I didn't pre-think it. Um, how, have you found opportunity uh, to 
present the program to people who may be not even alcoholics or addicts. I'm curious about, uh, I don't know. I, I, first of all, maybe the first question is, is just what are, what are some of the key principles that you've really latched onto that have helped you not just in sobriety, but just in life in general? Let's say it that way. Well, first of all, for people who don't know what the 12 steps consist of, they're, uh, like you said, they're really rules for clean, good living. And uh, the first one is about admitting you're powerless. The second and third about addressing the higher power that will help you to stay clean and sober. The four through 11 are talking about being a decent human being, uh, clean, um, paying, making amends for uh, things you've done wrong. Uh, and um, then the last one is uh, taking care of the person who is still suffering. Now, if every human being did step 12, whether they were sober or not, we wouldn't have the poverty. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the wars that we have. You know, step 12 is something we all should do. And by 12 step, the uh, 12 step of AA is what has kept me sober, I think. So um, um, I think that it is good for everybody. I, when I came back from rehab, I was monitored for five years. Most physicians are, they have to drop urines and uh, all this. There's a monitoring body. And after four years, I was asked to sit on that body. And I said, I can't sit on this body because I'm still being monitored by you. So that me out a year early because I was sort of a, you know, a model drunk, you know, in, in sobriety. So anyway, so I, I, I was on the, the state of Hawaii board that monitored physicians and dentists and, and veterinarians and PhD psychologists and stuff. And um, the last 10 years in Hawaii, I ran that board. I was uh, chair and it was a working board. It wasn't a, a supervisory board. So I was in the trenches uh, for 10 years with uh, freshly uh, discovered uh, doctors with problems. And uh, so I did 12 step work for them all the time. I also had sponsees. I mean, I took care of, uh, whenever there was a need, uh, I did, I helped what I, what I could, when I could, and that made me feel better. And so, um, but the things from the program that I learned, uh, was, uh, that gave me my self respect back, got rid of my guilt and shame over alcoholism and the things that it did to my family and such, and the things that it did to my, um, patience was um, learning to be rigorously honest, always living in gratitude and uh, always trying to help other people. Isn't that a good Christian mm -hmm. way to look at life? And so, um, and so I still um, respond to all of those things. And in my practice, before I got sober, a patient would say, wouldn't well, doc, I'm starting to have a little trouble with my Valium or my alcohol. And I would shut them up and I'd start talking about their hypertension because I couldn't cope with them having that problem because I had that problem. And so now I'm not afraid to address any of my patients' problems. The delicate things they bring up, I hit, I face it head on with them and I'm a much better doctor. Mm. I'm also um, more empathetic. I've done my own suffering. yeah, And so um, I'm empathetic uh, and I'm, uh, I think I, it's made all the world a difference in how I practice medicine. Mm. And it also has made me a better friend, a better father. Uh, and um, yeah, everybody needs the 12 steps. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, the people that I've met in recovery who are working the steps are amazing people. They've become some of my favorite people, right? Like you. Um, but Thank you. It's, it's because they, the, the honesty, the vulnerability, that connects us as humans, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then there's a humility to that. Um, and then the, just the hand that's always there to support to be there to reach out. Um, and I, you know, I've, as I've lived in the recovery world, it's made me, it's made me even kind of like rethink the, the church world. Like I, I think, I mean, I think honestly, if you're going to run a church or a spiritual community, it should have these kinds of components into it that we, that we experience in the recovery world, you know? So I've, I've extreme, I've been extremely grateful for the people that I've met in recovery. Um, so th- thanks for sharing about all of that. I, sure. I'm one of the things that I wanted to, we we're getting close to running out of time, but, um, one of the things that you taught at UMKC was, um, literature, right? Medicine, literature, medicine, literature, mm-hmm. which I, I'm a book worm too. Even though mm-hmm. I'm an athlete, I'm, I'm a book, I'm a book nut, right? I can see. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. One of my, one of my other bikes and books are, you know, maybe two positive addictions in my life. Right. But, yeah. Good. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your literature medicine course. Cause that always, just cause I love books that always fascinated me. Well, what are some of your favorites and how do you introduce them to students? And, um, I had actually two different courses. One of them was medicine and literature. One was medicine and body image. And, but both of them, I'm trying to raise the humanistic awareness of these students who are kind of nerdy, sciencey. Sometimes they've been, they've spent their life in front of a computer instead of uh, talking to people at dinner, you know. And so they they have communication uh, difficulties at times. Um, I choose my literature depending sort of on what's current. Uh, one year we read uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, uh, the year that Black Lives Matter became came to the forefront. And we also read uh, uh, The Plague by Albert Camus and uh, to talk about uh, physicians uh, in times of plague and um, examine the role of physician society in those kind of situations. So, and then... Um, this last year, I had them read, among other things, A Handmaid's Tale. So, because we were talking about, you know, women's rights are threatened right now. And um, I wanted to address uh, uh, women's rights uh, from, so that they are, the, the men in the audience could start thinking, well, from a, maybe a little bit different perspective, that uh, uh, they wouldn't want to be uh, second class in any way in this country. So, um so we, that was one of the books we talked about. Um, I talk, I had them read when Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, which is about a young neurosurgeon who gets diagnosed with uh, metastatic lung cancer when he's a senior surgical resident. And he talks about his illness and his death. And he's very young. And I think these young um, students could relate to somebody like that. And somebody like that young dying, that, that maybe they could think about death. We did a lot of poetry because you can get a lot of intense subject matter in a small space. Um, we did uh, books on and watch videos about uh, eating disorders and addiction. And um, uh, I had a whole week on transgender issues mm. where I had a transgender uh, 
young man, uh, uh, a trans man, mm -hmm. come in and talk about his experience for a couple of hours, uh, real life. I mean, it was amazing um, uh, that that two-hour session with this, with him. Mm. So um, I want to educate them more about that side of being the kind of physician that most patients want, a humanistic physician who is empathetic and will listen and will understand and will accept. Because I say, when you're, when you're a brand new doctor and your third patient walks in and stutters out that he's uh, struggling with a sexual identity and, you're, and wants to talk to you about it, and the fourth patient talks, wants to talk about his alcoholism, and you're brand new minted, are you going to have any kind of frame of reference to rise to those occasions? When you haven't had those life experiences yourself, yeah. you can still think them through mm. and be somewhat ready. Mm. And that's what I was trying to help them with because mm. I learned it on my own. And I didn't do a very good job until I did, did my homework at Talbot. Yeah, so right. <laughs> anyway, that was my goal. Yeah. Well, it is fascinating that... Um, an experience in life that almost took us out could actually be transformed into um, something that actually makes us like for yourself a better doctor. Oh yeah. Dr much better and much better at everything in life. I think, you know, when I first got sober, you hear the old timers, no, I'm an old timer. Uh, the old timers say um, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic and I would, Grateful? Yeah. I mean, I was grateful for lots of things, but grateful that this yeah. happened to me? I understand now. I understand what the, why they say grateful recovering alcoholic, because uh, I'd be dead now, but even if I wasn't dead, I wouldn't be as nice a person. I wouldn't be as genuine a person. I wouldn't like myself. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it, uh, I just still regret my children had to, go through what they had to go through and such. But um, for myself, it's been a blessing. Yeah. Yeah, when people would say that when I was first in, first year, first two years, I was like, yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it felt. Yeah, me too. You know, and, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm, you know, three and a half years and like I'm, I'm starting to get glimmers of, okay, well, me, you know. You know, and just just that all of the the crap that I've gone through could I have that hope that it that's it, can be transformed into something good. You know, oh, so uh, I am sure it will. So that's my I'm I've, certain I've got that hope now at least. Good, good. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not like uh, I'm not like cringing when people talk about gra grateful alcoholic now. Which at first I did. Like, I was Me like, too. oh God, this is the most miserable thing I've ever gone through in my life. Like I want to die. I, I wouldn't care to, I, you know, there was a point where I wouldn't have cared if I died or not. I understand. Yeah. Me too. I think my children saved me. Mm. I think I would have died. Wow. But, uh, yeah. but, uh, um, I couldn't do that to my kids. So, uh, I think it's, they're the reason I went. I didn't stay in rehab. I didn't stay sober for my kids. I went there for my kids. Mm -hmm. I stayed for myself. Okay. Because you only stay sober for yourself. Yeah. But it took me a while. They're the ones who got me there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, grateful for you. And thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. I'm curious, like, as we kind of wrap things up, what, what do you, what, what do you see in the future? Like, where are you going from here? Um, oh boy. <laughs> You've, you're, yeah. Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm still, uh, obligated four days a week professionally. So I only really have three days. I'm not doing doctoring and I'm going to do that for another year or two. I'm in a new relationship that I want to evolve. Uh, I want to travel more. I, I am going to got a couple of big trips coming up this year. And I, uh, uh, I thought when I was 17 years old, I would write novels. Mm. So, um, my daughter has sent me these things. My sister is sending me these things, how to write, you know, you know, all these workshop things, they're pushing me. <laughs> so maybe, maybe in, um, three or four years, I'll take some time and, hmm. and start writing. That's interesting. I've, you know, I'm, I'm going to be starting a, a memoir here soon. I'm working with an editor and actually next week, but, uh, but I've, so I've written only prose all my whole life. I've never written any, any fiction at all, I, but I read fiction and I love it, but I've, oh man, I've, I've wondered if I could ever write fiction. It's, it's interesting. I think I can. Uh, I don't know how good it'll be, but people just say, just, just fictionalize your life story. That's good enough. And, and well, cause it's pretty colorful. And, uh, and, uh, that I, could be true. Yeah. That, that, but I, 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 my answer is they're not all dead yet, so I can't do it. But, uh, I think that, uh, I might start writing in the next few years. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, good deal. Well, I, if I've never been to Hawaii, so, I'm so sorry for that. You know, so maybe, maybe one of these days. Maybe we'll go, to, maybe you'll go when I'm there and I can show you Aloha and yeah. uh, the real Hawaii, not Waikiki. So that's the way I like to experience the world is through. I'll people. take you on, you'll have yeah. the most beautiful hikes. I don't like to do the tourist thing. I like to yeah. actually, you know. Me too. Yeah. So. If, if you like to hike and uh, I have friends with mountain bikes. Yeah. Because uh, I know you like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll show you the real Hawaii. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures, and we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using, and then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.